I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Blackest eyes, the devil's eyes, purely and simply evil. You're out of your mind, Wayne. God bless you. <laughs> What do we do? Hello out there and welcome back to Precinct 13, a podcast about the movies, music, and mind of John Carpenter. My name is Nick Rocco Scalia, one of your two co-hosts, joined as always by your other co-host, Chris Oliphant. Hey, Chris, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Nick. How are you? I'm good. It's 2020, and uh, (laughs) we are about to talk about the far-flung future of 1997. Hmm. I like it. Today is our second 1980s Carpenter movie, and... What I think is one of his absolute best movies, Escape from New York from 1981, same year I was born. And we are joined today by another guest co-host, Cool Raj Rocks. Welcome to the show, Raj. Thank you, and happy 2020. Same to you. So um, as we did with our, our last guest co-host, Megan Mosley, who really knocked it out of the park with the fog and Halloween, she's going to be our sort of uh, carpenter horror guru. But where do you come to the carpenter filmography from? Like, uh, how big of a fan are you? What haven't you seen? And what do you think is the best stuff? Well, um, it's funny because I personally have never really thought about John Carpenter until Chris started bringing it to my attention again. I, I I was born in 68, so a lot of these movies came out while I was still growing up. And the one that I do remember the most, and having seen it in the theater, is Escape from New York. And that was the one that really introduced me to John Carpenter. I had no idea who he was, but, you know, the, he- the title of it, John Carpenter's Escape from New York, that's, I've never forgotten that. And, uh... Chris talking about John Carpenter all the time, <laughs> you know, made me realize I was like, I, I don't really know all his movies or, or, you know, which ones are his or, or any of that. So, uh, this has been very interesting to revisit all these movies that you guys talk about as well as I, I, I there were so many, I had no idea that were his Chris definitely has that effect on people. Um, <laughs> his enthusiasm for John Carpenter and many other things is just... Uh, it's it's, it's, it's infect- <laughs> infectious. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's been on my mind. And we were just talking about this. It's crazy. Like Roger was saying, uh, sorry not to date you again, but, you know, uh, Roger saw this movie in the fucking theaters, man. Yeah, it's crazy. I was 13. And uh, anything sci-fi related at that point i was all on board and this this was a futuristic wow. you know looking movie and uh i i mean you know i i just i had to see it and i thoroughly enjoyed it <laughs> it's a really great time for hollywood sci-fi i mean you got star wars in 77 and that trilogy plays out uh, across the early 80s you've got yep. some of the great early carpenter stuff blade runner in 1982 from yep. ridley scott love so, that one too you know i think after star wars everything just sort of picks up for that genre and, and i don't know if it's ever going to come back like that i mean probably right. tv is the place for great sci-fi now um, yep. but occasionally you still get a pretty interesting movie but i haven't seen anything like escape from new york in a while and uh 
it was fun to revisit it. I didn't see it till a little bit later. This was on TV all the time when I was a kid, and I probably watched it like 12 times just with like commercials and all the cool yeah. stuff edited out of it, and I still really enjoyed it a lot, and, uh, and it's been fun to revisit it. Yeah, I, you know, like I said, I, I saw it in the theater. I've probably, you know, touched on it a few times over the last few decades. Um, but sitting down and watching it again for the first time, uh, you, you know, all the way through, you know, really paying attention, I, I still loved it. It was great. Uh, you know, obviously, like I said, I was very into the whole sci-fi thing during that period of my life and uh, still am, but... Uh, the darkness of that movie compared to all the other things that, you know, I was used to at that time was, was very intriguing. Yeah. And for some reason, I mean, we'll talk about this on the show as we move forward. It feels kind of like a timely movie, even though it's from 1981. It's set in a year that has passed as, has long since passed us. Um, some of the concerns in this movie, and I think some of the inspirations for it really do still apply to the world that we live in. And it's pretty interesting to see that because not everything from this period is going to feel that way. But uh, we should officially get into it. We will be right back to talk more about Escape from New York. I'm going in. John Carpenter's Escape from New York, the high adventure of the future. One man must go in where no man has ever gotten out. And if he comes back alone, his nightmare has just begun. Who are you? John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Heard you were dead. All right, we are back. You just heard some of the amazing John Carpenter Penn's score for Escape from New York and heard a little bit of what this movie sounds like. And I think you get a really good feel for this movie from the trailer. It is a dystopian sci-fi saga where the city of New York has been turned into a maximum security prison and possibly one of the most badass movie heroes of all time is sent in there to <laughs> save the president. Chris, give us the short plot summary for Escape from New York. Yeah, so we get Kurt Russell playing this character, Snake Pliskin, and we don't really know too much about this guy other than he's a super badass. And basically, I mean, you kind of set it up there with the, uh, the concept of New York being this maximum security prison. <laughs> the president, who's played by Donald Pleasance in this movie, gets, uh, essentially his plane gets hijacked, and... He is taken hostage in the city, and the only way they can figure out how to get him out of there is to hire uh, Snake Plissken. So, so they, I wouldn't call that hiring. Well, they don't hire him. They, they, yeah, they they make a deal with him where they're like, okay, look, you have a criminal record because of I believe it's a bank robbery, which was a scene that was cut out of the, the movie I read. Um, I would have actually really liked to see that. So he is, uh, he's ex-Special yeah. Forces. He's fought in all these future wars that we haven't had yet. The movie, like we said, is set in 1997. There's like a preamble to the movie, almost like a Star Wars kind of text crawl. Uh, it's read by Jamie Lee Curtis, actually, which is pretty interesting. I don't believe she's credited, but that is her voice that tells us about the basically prison takeover of New York City. And now we're about a decade after that, where, uh, like you said, the president's plane has been hijacked and he ends up there in his little escape pod. So Snake Plissken is a 
He's a veteran. He's fought in a, a number of conflicts that are sort of just very vaguely mentioned in the film, like, uh, you know, places that he's been and stuff like that, and then decided to go rogue. And uh, and it's not just a bank. It's the Federal Reserve Bank. So uh, yes. <laughs> it's like a go big or go home kind of thing for Snake Plissken. And he is just a leather jacket wearing mulleted badass with, uh, with an eye patch that we're never told how he got that eye patch or how he lost the eye. And I assume it was in either one of those wars or in that bank robbery, but um, it definitely makes him look that much more like the, uh, the grizzled hero that he is. Oh yeah. Yeah. They keep, they, they keep talking about what he did in like Leningrad or something like that. <laughs> right. 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 The job you pulled off in Leningrad, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but um, yeah, he's, he is um, he, basically they're, they want to send him in to get the president who has a black box, which has some super top secret information on it involving, you know, I mean, this is a very, very cold war kind of movie too, in a yeah. lot of ways. Yeah. yeah. Well, this movie assumes that, uh, that the Soviet union still exists in the far flung future of 1997. And I believe what he's bringing. So he's on his way to a summit, the plane is hijacked by this domestic terrorist group that we never really learn anything else about. Like, they basically hijack the plane, he escapes, they crash the plane, and that's pretty much it. Like, they don't really come back into the story at all. That's never paid off. I have to point this out right now because I thought about it when I was watching it, and I think about I think about it every time I watch this movie, but is it not creepy that there's... I mean, this movie has a scene right at the beginning where a plane flies into a building in New York and you even see uh, as the plane is headed towards the skyline of the city, you can see like what's supposed to be the Twin Towers. Right, right. Uh, totally not like trying to come up with some insane conspiracy theory about this movie, but it just it's just strange. Chris, I definitely want to see your uh, your documentary about how Escape from New York predicts events that happen in the future. <laughs> John Carpenter, Nostradamus. <laughs> but, um, I mean, you're right about that. One of the things that, that makes this film really interesting watching it now in 2020 is the World Trade Center plays a huge role in this movie. Like, it's a central location. It's where Snake Plissken enters the city of New York from. Um, there's an action scene set in the lobby there sort of later on. So, um, you know, it does kind of force us to grapple with uh, with our own history and, and with how New York has changed over the years. I mean, also, this is a period of films and, and a period of time in American history where New York City is this really gritty, really scary kind of place. Like this is before, you know, the, the late 90s, early 2000s. They call it kind of the Disneyfication of New York, where yep. basically Times Square no longer becomes a place full of grindhouse theaters and strip clubs and stuff like that. But it becomes the really commercial thing that it is now and New York becomes a, a safer place to live but maybe a very less interesting place to live but at the time I mean you got all this urban crime and you got this sort of fear of the inner city and this movie really plays on that a lot and uh, and I think you know if you're a young kid seeing it now you might not understand kind of what the, the feelings about New York were back then this is in the wake of the movie Death Wish which I believe takes place in New York um, which is this hmm. vigilante crime movie where a guy kind of takes the law into his own hands because the police are unwilling or un unable to do it. So I think it definitely plays on a lot of that stuff. I mean, we haven't really gotten far in the plot here, but uh, but there's just so much to unpack as far as what this movie's trying to say, you know, and, and what it meant at the time and kind of what it means now. Like, I'm glad we're doing two episodes on this because we, we've got a long way to go. 
I like that you pointed out um, that people who weren't around during that time wouldn't really understand the grittiness and, and, and the like dark cloud that hung over New York during the, you know, the, the seventies and eighties. Um, I actually spent a lot of time in New York as a, as a kid. And, uh, I think what you said about how they wouldn't understand, but that even makes it still relevant because it can be futuristic still, even though you didn't grow up then and see that that actually was going on, not to the extent of the movie, but basically how it can still become, you know, that dark cloud kind of place. Yeah, and it's really interesting because, I mean, this is not a post-apocalyptic movie, but it kind of feels like one because we are in New York City after it's been taken over as a prison, so it looks post-apocalyptic. Like, we, we never get a sense of what the rest of the world is really like in Escape from New York, like all we ever really see. And and Carpenter made a, a good point about this. I was just watching an interview with him about the film, and you've got kind of the police state. You've got, like, outside the boundaries of the city. We see basically the base where the, the law enforcement agencies run run the city from and that's all very high tech and uh and he said you know i wanted to use a lot of neon colors and make it look very antiseptic and very sort of technology based and then you get into the city and it's just a shithole um you know there's there's yeah. garbage everywhere yeah. uh you know there's some power but like most of it is dark the criminals have rigged up some generators and stuff but mostly it's quiet it's dark and it's really scary so you know, it feels very much like a, a post-apocalyptic movie, even though, you know, people could be living just fine in the rest of the United States. Like that opening crawl in the beginning that we were talking about, they say something like, like the crime rate increased 400%. So the only thing they could do was basically devote an entire city to being a prison. Um, so we know things are not terrific there. Uh, you know, you've got guys like Snake Plissken knocking off the Federal Reserve just for ha-has, but the world hasn't really ended. I mean, it's... There's a little bit of like nuclear paranoia, like that's why the president is going to this summit. But, um, you know, it's like this one part of America has become post-apocalyptic and the rest of it is still just sort of chugging along. I think that's an interesting idea. I don't, I don't know that I've really seen a lot of movies that, that sort of separate things that way. I love the no talking, no smoking um, <laughs> thing at the beginning. It's like, no talking, no smoking, follow the orange line. And uh, by the way, if you'd like to be executed right now, now is your chance to... Uh, the, the way they say it is so pleasant. Like, oh, yeah, maybe that is a better idea. And, uh, you know, I think someone would feel that way if we're looking at a very long prison sentence in the harshest and scariest prison ever conceived. Uh, maybe you would want to do that. Yeah, I just always find a humor in the being able to opt into uh, just having yourself killed is pretty cremation in yeah. this movie yeah, yeah yeah and then you can be immediately cremated i mean carpenter is is a very witty guy when it comes to sort of writing these things and you know if you listen to his interviews about this film he says he was heavily inspired by watergate and uh, and just sort of political corruption and crime at the time and he really you know tries to inject social commentary in this and i think a very organic way and it just works um without you know if you don't want to pay attention to any of that stuff this is also a really just kick-ass chase movie action movie but if you mm -hmm. want to look a little closer at stuff like the way that that police state prison complex is set up uh you know you can take some subtext out of it also uh we have to talk about hauk not hawk but hauk played by <laughs> the great spaghetti western star and character actor lee van cleef 
grief because he's not in this movie much, but he was kind of the Kurt Russell of his generation. And it's really cool to see these, you know, iconic screen badasses, one that is just starting to become that and one that everyone already knows is that uh, they don't share a lot of scenes together, but they are in contact. The characters have a history. What do we think of Hauk? I think he's a fantastic actor. And I think he, I mean, his character is pretty vital to the story here. I mean, he's the one who's laying out the uh, mission for uh, Snake. And um, I don't know, though, is he a good guy or not? Because it's, I guess, the, uh, the, obviously the stakes are pretty high because they're not just saying, hey, you know, you need to go in there and get the president, but you've only got X amount of time to do it. And we've injected this you know, poison into your body or whatever that's going to kill you. Yeah. Well, Uh, Chris, you bring up a great point there, right? Because I don't think there are any good guys in this movie. Um, I don't think there's anything even close to one, right? So your hero is a criminal. Um, Everyone that he interacts with once he gets into New York City is a criminal. Like, we don't know what everybody did to get there, but we know that they are all in prison for some reason. Then you've got this, like, quasi-fascist police state outside of New York City. Even the president turns out to be kind of a dirtbag when we get to the end of the movie. Spoiler alert. So um, it really is kind of an interesting moral universe, and I think Hauk exemplifies that really well because he's definitely gruff and he's definitely not very nice, but I guess he's looked at by this society as uh, as someone somewhat heroic. I mean, he is running this prison facility, so he's uh, he's accomplished something in his life. But yeah, it's uh, we definitely have to question. I mean, what they basically do is inject Snake Plissken with something that is going to kill him if he doesn't get in a, get into the city and get out. And I believe it's 22 hours uh, because the president has to get to this summit where he's basically trying to broker some kind of peace treaty with I think it's China and Russia and basically. Basically, uh, he has a tape which has some information on it that he's offering to them to, I guess, avert a nuclear war. So um, it is a a very save the world kind of movie. And one of the things that I love about this is this is one of those movies that uh, I love when when films lay out what the story is going to be. And, and, you know, uh, like the opening scenes of the movie give a character a mission. They basically detail what he has to do and what the steps are. And of course, we know because it's a movie and and the sort of laws of uh, of dramatic setup and payoff that not everything is going to play out exactly as we expect it to and something is going to go wrong. But I love the idea that they sort of take a couple of minutes in this film to say, all right, this is what you need to do. Here is where you need to go. And we, we get to sort of follow along. You know, it, it's almost... Uh, it's like the the whole heist movie setup uh, where right, you get right. like this is what everyone has to do this is this is everyone's job this is how this scenario is going to play out and uh, and so you're following along and you sort of recognize things along the way you know landing on top of the World Trade Center and, and stuff like that it's all like really neatly laid out um, let's I guess get a little bit more into the plot because uh, that's, that's sort of what I wanted to set up with that so um, how do you guys feel about how this works as an action movie like in your opinion um, you know is this one of Carpenter's tighter more sort of well-written scripts Chris you want to take that yeah, <laughs> uh, I yeah. Got my opinion. It's, it's a loaded <laughs> question I think it is obviously yeah it, it, it definitely I Look, I think you kind of covered it when you said earlier, like, you can watch this movie a number of different ways, and I think that, I think one of the reasons why it's one of his more popular movies is because you can just kind of straight up watch it as an action movie. Um, 
I don't know. I think that the, the setup is really good. Um, it's kind of a slow burn. I, you know, like, I don't think it's like packed with action right, right off the bat. Right, right. Uh, but it definitely gets there um, in the later half of the film. So I think just from a, from an atmos- atmospheric perspective, it is really dark. And I think the world building, like the, all the settings that they do in the city are very well done. Wasn't the most accurate prediction for 1997, but, uh, you know, it is, it is what it is. Maybe 2027, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> We're getting there. No, just kidding. Yeah. So as, as someone, like I said, who experienced this firsthand as, as a kid, uh, well, a tween, I guess, is what they call me now, 13, when I saw this movie, it was the action. It was the, the intrigue of, of future that, that really drew me to the movie, and, and it delivered. I, I really liked it. Obviously, seeing it now as an adult, I, I get the underlying tones. I understand that, you know, like I said earlier, the dark grittiness, cloudiness of, of New York at the time, uh, you know, I, reflecting back, I, I, I remember it, you know, but at, as a kid that time, it was just, for me, it was just a future. It was a sci-fi, it was action, it was, you know, uh, I don't know if I really thought about it being dark back then as far as, uh, you know, the the underlying messages or, or just the the atmosphere of New York and, and um, during that period. But it was, for me, very entertaining. Yeah. I didn't see this movie until I was, jeez, uh, I want to, I, if I had to estimate, I think it was probably 10 years ago was the first time I ever saw this movie. Right, right. Um, wait a minute. That can't be true. No, actually, I do think it's true. Um, so, for example, here's a here's a memory I have. So, when when Robert Rodriguez finally remakes this movie, <laughs> um, which I don't know if that'll actually ever happen, but you guys remember when when Robert Rodriguez released the Machete movies, right? Like, oh, yeah. the, you know, I think it was two thousand eight or not, or no, two thousand ten was probably the first Machete movie. <laughs> You always got to bring Machete back into everything. <laughs> I have never brought up Machete on this show. You haven't, but like in, in regular conversation, you do. Yeah, okay. Well, <laughs> I, I, I'm a fan. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I mean, you must know where I'm going with this. Like, there's a scene with Danny Trejo and Jeff Fahey where he's telling, he's telling Machete, like, I need you to, you know, uh, uh, be involved in this assassination attempt or whatever it is. And essentially, he's going to give him his freedom, right? You know, to do this mission, and that whole dialogue with them sitting at at the table in his office, and then going into this warehouse where he's showing him like all these weapons that he just has as at right. his disposal, right? Is right out of Escape from New York, right? I mean, right. that it. And so when I saw Escape, that's crazy. I saw Machete before I saw Escape from New York. So when I went back and saw Escape from New York for the first time, right. I was like, oh, my God. Like, right. they just um, ripped like off Like an it. homage or something. Yeah. 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 So I just want to touch real quick on Van Cleef that you were you were saying about Hawk. And, and you know, having having rewatched this again, you know, I, I like that you called him, you know, the spaghetti Western kind of villain slash <laughs> sheriff or whatever you want to call it. But for me, I was waiting for a big showdown you know, the, the, between Hawk and, mm. and, and Snake. 
and you know i think i think that tension building you know in, in the beginning was for me having rewatched it i don't know if i felt this way as a as a 13 year old but uh and it's possible i did cuz you're you're kind of waiting for the end result of what what snake's going to do to this guy and like i said it's almost like a showdown like spaghetti western showdown between a bad guy and a you know maybe not a good guy but <laughs> yeah just a showdown yeah and they do i mean uh, you know that's going to get paid off in the end and it does uh, and it gets paid off in i think a very interesting way even maybe yeah. more so than a showdown where little you know, twist. He, he says something like oh so are you going to kill me now cuz of course uh, snake makes the threat early in the movie and and we've seen this in so many movies where he says the next time i see you or something like that i'm going to kill yep. you yeah um, yeah and then they see each other again. And at that point, I think we know that he's not going to act on that threat, but um, he's still kind of a dangerous guy. And, and, you know, throughout the movie, he just becomes tougher and grittier and more of a badass as he proceeds through this film. And, uh, and by the end, Hauk respects him so much. He's like, do you want a job? Um, which is a, <laughs> yeah. a really neat payoff, I think, to, uh, to, to what's set up in the beginning of the film. Yeah. Well, I think it also, you know, just it, it kind of just, there's so many tension building moments in in the movie throughout. And, you know, that's one of them. It starts off in the beginning with him, you know, and each character kind of adds to that tension, you know, how, and it just, you know, obviously leading to the climax, but I, I think that's a great uh, introduction to the tension. Yeah. Like I said, it's, it's just a very well-developed script. And, uh, and I think, you know, and we don't get a lot of character development, but what we get is really great and, uh, and sets things up really nicely. And there are like multiple conflicts operating. I mean, again, we never learn more about those terrorists that hijack Air Force One at the beginning of the play, right. uh, at the movie. Right. And I am just kind of interested to know a little bit more about the geopolitical situation or, or like what's happening in America that would uh, maybe lead to something like that happening. Um, but there's so much other stuff going on that we don't even have time for that. Like the movie just has to proceed forward and, and just leave that behind. I, I actually like that they don't really develop any character. I, I, I like that each each character or even the terrorists just play a role in setting it up. It's not really, you're not getting in depth. I don't want to call it surface because you actually, you know, get a connection to what's going on. Uh, It's not template. I mean, it kind of could be, but it, you know, it just, uh, like I said, each character, it's believable. Each, 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 you know, development is believable to me, at least uh, without the depth. Well, I, I agree with that, too. Like, movies nowadays, they probably would want to supply a little bit more backstory for things. Like, um, you know, a, a good example of that is the character Romero, who is played by the great Frank Doubleday. Just one of the scariest-looking motherfuckers I've ever seen in a movie, <laughs> uh, previously of Assault on Precinct 13. And he is the right-hand man of the villain of this film, that which we haven't even talked about yet. We have so so far to go. Uh, the Duke, Isaac Hayes. Um, this is, like, his lieutenant. And... You know, he's he plays an important role in the movie, but we don't know anything about him. He's just this uh, spiky haired punk 
looking guy that is really good at threatening people and uh, and is super loyal to his boss, who's this sort of crime lord that runs the prison that is New York City. And he kind of just like comes and goes in the movie. And all we know about him is that he's scary and he's a criminal and he is to be feared. And that's basically about it. Um, I loved know, his character. Yeah, I, I like him too. And I think, you know, in a, a 2000s kind of movie you would have like some whole thing where snake finds out like who he is and they'd have some history together or something like that like you know i like the idea that everyone in this movie thinks they know snake but really nobody does um you know he doesn't really have a lot of uh, of connection to the people that he runs into and i feel like now uh the screenplay would have to just sort of contrive all these relationships that you don't really need here i mean he should be kind of like an, an alien character in this world that he enters into. I mean, that, that's where a lot of the tension from this movie comes from. Um, on that note, uh, my favorite sequence in this film is actually very early on. I mean, there's great stuff throughout. I think this is a really, uh, you know, I, I disagree with you, Chris. I think this is a really action-packed movie, um, particularly compared to some stuff we see today where you get like a couple of good action scenes and, uh, and a lot of talk in between. I, I've had that problem with a lot of recent action films that I've seen. Not um, great special effects, though. <laughs> which ones are you referring to uh well one the the lack of explosion from the giant air force one that crashes into new york and there's like a little bonfire that happened basically yeah uh you know some of the green screens are just really you know you can see the outlines and and, and i don't know i mean, well, I mean it's not pl- horrible but it's not good the plane the plane falling off the building at the end looks like a paper plane falling <laughs> yeah. off it the is action packed but not special effects packed Let's well, I, I mean, I think at the time, though, that must have been pretty impressive. Uh, James Cameron worked on this movie. He was one of the, really? I believe he did some yeah. matte paintings and stuff like that. I mean, I really like that stuff, but that's because I, I'm not saying that matte paintings and rear projection and stuff like that. I will never say that it looks better than CGI. Um, right, right. But, but there's something very just sort of handmade and, and tactile about that that I really like. I mean, there's great, great miniature work in this movie. Um, yeah. You know, the, the fact that everyone, you know, every, every time you read about this movie i always see this or someone always talks about this so there's uh computer displays in this movie that show like wireframe models of the city um, yeah you know like a google maps kind of thing and that yep. was all done with miniatures they actually painted miniatures with these bright lines on them and filmed them with an actual camera so you basically got practical special effects trying to look like cgi like computer graphics i mean that's amazing like that's kind of you know, now we can just create something like that so easily. And right. uh, and now most of our special effects are, uh, are CGI based. But, um, you know, I, I really there's just something very quaint and very awesome about the, the way this movie does a lot of its special effects. And also, I mean, a lot of this achieved through production design. I mean, they took real streets in, uh, I believe, it was East St. Louis, where there was a, a downtown fire. So you had these real bombed out neighborhoods and they just brought in a bunch of junk and scattered it all over the place. And it really does look like a post-apocalyptic city and uh you had to physically create that back then um but just sort of back to the the sequence i was talking about i love when snake first enters the city and is basically on his own and is uh looking for this beacon that that represents where the president is and you know basically the first i'd say 
30, 40 minutes of this movie, you know, where he is just a stranger in a strange land. He has no allies. Um, we learn very quickly what a scary place this is. And uh, and that all com- culminates in the sequence where he goes into a coffee shop. He runs into Season Hubley, uh, who played Priscilla Presley in Elvis, who was his wife at the time. And she's just this kind of uh, scared survivor who's hiding out in this coffee shop. And we know there's these underground people that sometimes come up and just, uh, you know, pillage and steal and kill people and get up to all kinds of bad business and of course they immediately show up they pull her underground we never know what happens to that character uh, the character is credited as girl in chock full of nuts she doesn't even get a name <laughs> and, I just noticed uh, that I saw that <laughs> and right after that you get this amazing action sequence it reminds me very much of uh, Assault in Precinct 13 where these underground dwellers come up and they pursue Snake through a tenement building and he shoots holes in the wall and kicks through it which I had never seen um, you know they do that all the time in movies now but I don't know if I've ever seen that in a movie that came out before Escape from New York, so might have invented that. I believe they've done that a couple times in Robert Rodriguez movies. Chris, you would know that better than I would, but... I'm sure they do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's like shooting through the floor, shooting some holes in the floor, and just kicking through it. I love that. Um, You know, that always looks cool on film. I don't know if the physics of that are very realistic, but um, you get this amazingly tense sequence. It's really dark. It's really scary. I mean, that's as close as this gets to being a horror film, temporarily. Um, um, and it, it also kind of does some of the chase stuff really well. But uh, what about you guys? What are some of your favorite sequences? What are some of the things that uh, that stick in your mind when thinking back to Escape from New York? It's it's hard for me to isolate, um, you know, like a favorite scene in the movie. But um, <clears throat> certainly the scene you're talking about. Um, I love Donald Pleasance. So anytime he's on the screen, that's a good thing. He's not really in this movie all that much. But... I think the scene, one of the scenes that I, we already sort of talked about before is uh, I really love the dialogue between Hauk and Snake at, at the, you know, towards the beginning of the movie. And I just love how he's like, he's like, when I get back, I'm going to kill you. And of course, um, you know, it's good to see Charles Cyphers in there. But again, he's not in this too much. We've got like the all-star cast here again, Nick, with the. Uh, Pretty much a lot of the, I mean, Tom Atkins is back. Yeah, you got a lot of Carpenter regulars. Adrian Barbeau, who he was married to at the time. And uh, I think she's really, really good in this movie. I mean, she doesn't get to do as much here as she does in The Fog, but uh, but this is two in a row for her. You also get these great character actors who did not appear in a lot of Carpenter films, but like Ernest Borgnine and Harry Dean Stanton. Um, Isaac Hayes is uh, is a whole lot of fun in this movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it is a, a really stacked cast. Yeah. I, I would like to uh, point out, and, and this, this may just be me, but when you were talking about the uh, underground, uh, you know, horror kind of sequence, um, you know, throughout this movie, I started, I started seeing a lot of, uh, I don't know if this was on purpose or not, or just because of how they're trying to portray, uh, you know, this dark New York uh atmosphere but the gangs you know a lot of the scenes to me reminded me of the warriors totally and even even a little bit of the wanderers you know like the scary scene with the ducky boys and you know the the baseball bat scenes where they're just all running and trying to kill each other and you know a lot of those scenes i i i i I felt like they were done on purpose you know because that movie came out you know three four years earlier i think the warriors and wanderers but anyway 
That was just uh, hmm. something that I noticed that I was like, wow, this is very reminiscent of uh, <laughs> the gangs and in, in, in the Warriors and Wanderers. Totally is. And I'm glad you mentioned the Warriors, actually, because we were talking about the sort of, um, you know, late 70s, early 80s New York films. And I mentioned yeah. Death Wish. Yeah. And, uh, and certainly the Warriors fits in that category also. I mean, uh, like, I guess there must have been a real fear at the time of street gangs and yes. movies yes. just really, really like to portray them in, in interesting ways because... That was something that people were, I guess, afraid of and uh, and wanted to sort of see. Like, that was a provocative thing. I mean, Assault yeah, in Precinct 13 yeah. does that a little bit, too. You get that sort of zombie-like street gang where they basically don't even have any dialogue. But uh, but they're all really colorful characters, again, with um, Frank Doubleday in there as, as possibly the most colorful of all of them. Right. I, I'd have to say growing up uh, in the South, uh, you know, like I said, as a kid, you know, all, everybody was you know, you can't go to New York, you'll get killed, you know, like the, that whole mentality of, you know, New York is just the murder capital of the world kind of thing. Like, you know, it, I, I remember everyone just always saying that to me. I'm like, I've been there. I'm not dead. You know, what's, what's the big deal? You know, like, but how it was portrayed. And like you said, the fear of, of the unknown, I guess, really, uh, it permeated the, the, at least in, in, you know, my, dealings with people from the south uh that was really a kind of a big fear well and john carpenter's from the south also so uh you know he probably heard i mean he's he's before your time but uh right. you know he probably has some of the same um same thoughts about the city and some of the same ideas about uh what what crime is like in, uh, in right, an urban right. environment as uh, as you right. might also um it's interesting to look back at this movie just in terms of, of how this plot is set up where the federal government has taken over New York as a prison. You know, we can imagine something like that happening today. It just wouldn't be New York City, right? Like economically, right. it was more depressed back then than it is now. Um, but you look right. at a place like Detroit and... Uh, you know, where totally. there's just empty city blocks where uh, where everyone has basically left and you could probably do something like this there. So right. it's not an unrealistic movie in terms of uh, like that could never happen. It's just you'd have to change the place a little bit. Right. Right. Yeah. And of course, uh, there's a tr so there's a tracking device that's on the, the president. And of course, we find out that, you know, when he finally gets to it, that it's not on the president but someone else <laughs> i wanted to point out nick did you notice that the character in this movie that has the tracking device on them is the same guy from the fog who gets killed on the the uh ship at the beginning nice. i did not at all notice that so thank you for pointing that out actually can we talk about that scene for a second because that's another thing i mean that, that is part of the sequence that i was talking about earlier but um snake basically tracks the beacon to a, a theater and he goes in there it's like a, a you know, it's not a Broadway theater. It's like an off-Broadway theater. And he walks in and there's all these criminals sitting around and they're watching a show. There's like a musical happening on stage where all these like colorfully dressed gang members are singing this song about the city that they're in and how, you know, if you commit a crime, then you'll end up there. And it kind of blows my mind to think that if we walled off the city of New York and threw a bunch of criminals in there, that some of them, you know, rather than rape and pillage and do horrible things, they just 
write and perform a musical every night for their fellow <laughs> criminals. That's such an unusual scene. It is, but it's so fun. I mean, that brings us into almost like an uncanny, like David Lynchy kind of territory. And there's not a lot of that in this movie, but uh, but it is. It's possibly the silliest mo- moment in the movie, but for some reason, in the context of everything else, it just works. It doesn't it pull works. me out of it the works. story. And exactly. <laughs> Ernest Ernest Borgnine is enjoying this play way too much. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's not a lot of entertainment, I guess. So this is all you get. So if you're inclined to go see a show, you know, if you're like a white collar criminal or something like that, like we don't see a lot of them, but some of these people might have been that and they've just devolved into what, what they are in this film. But I just find it kind of interesting that, you know, everyone would approach this situation in their own different way. And some people just want to be on stage. Some people just love to perform and, uh, and write music and you wouldn't really expect that in this kind of place yeah and everybody for some reason thinks that snake is is dead you know that's a that's right. a recurring theme throughout the movie is everyone sees him and goes i thought you were dead right right you know um we we don't really know what event or uh you know what kind of news people thought whatever it was that happened to him but uh everyone thinks he's dead and he's clearly not well, right. And like I said before, he's a legend. Um, you know, nobody yeah. really knows yeah. him, but everybody wants to say that they knew him. I mean, he's got this this aura, this stature about him. And, you know, he's this ultimate badass criminal or, or something or war hero, I guess both. Um, but we don't really know exactly what they knew him from. Uh, but a lot of people do say, I thought you were dead. And that's a very Western thing, right? I mean, this, right. this movie does do a lot of the same things that that the spaghetti westerns do where you've got these desolate locations and these really desperate kind of um morally compromised characters that that will do whatever they need to do to survive well i also think that that question of uh they thought he was dead is answered when he meets brain because basically he says to brain you left me to die Oh, yeah. I didn't, right, right. And, yeah. and I, I'm wrong about that, right? I, I said that nobody really knows him, but Brain knows him kind of intimately. Like, they were part of a heist crew together. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I guess, you know, Brain spread around the legend is dead kind of thing through New York or, you know, whatever. But he does, uh, he does. you know, when he meets Brain, I should kill you right now. Oh, is he? he's played by Harry Dean Stanton, right? Uh, I'm sure yeah, that's correct. That's, okay, yeah. you're yeah. right. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, so th- maybe that's how the rumor got spread that he was dead. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and then, yeah, so the brain is basically, he has something that's important to, like, the Duke and his whole posse, right? Like, because he seems to be kind of like, he has access to him. He's and- making the, the fuel. That's what it is, yeah. the fuel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. he makes a fuel. He also um, has a, a diagram of where the landmines are. So every oh, yeah. exit out of the city is mined. Um, that's, that's how they right. basically keep people in. Uh, there's a great opening moment where two guys try to escape on a raft and, uh, and are blown up very quickly by a helicopter. And the other ways out of the city, aside from water, are the bridges. And instead of just blowing up the bridges, which I don't understand why they didn't do that, <laughs> uh, they just put down a bunch of landmines all over them. And somehow Brain has figured out where the landmines are on this one particular bridge. So he is kind of... Uh, uh, the linchpin for this escape attempt that's going to happen. And I think we... they said they sent out a bunch of gophers to figure out the map <laughs> and they would just, uh, they would explode and go, okay, there's a mine there. Okay, that's a great a way to do it. Right? I'm pretty sure they mentioned how they figured out the map. <laughs> 
I, 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 I'm not remembering that, but I'm sure it's. I'm, I'm sure not remembering that either. There. But if if that's not explicitly said in the movie, I'm sure that's exactly <laughs> what they did. That's what I would do. Yeah. Um. So let's talk about Isaac Hayes, man. Like that's <laughs> that, that's that's crazy that he's in this movie. A smooth uh, criminal. Yeah. And uh, oh, I love his car with the chandeliers. It's so oh, yeah. great. The Pimped production out. design in this movie is just so good. I mean, everything is is exactly what it needs to be, and um, you know that's exactly the kind of car that a guy like that would drive. <laughs> yeah, he's he's literally like dipping around this like vintage caddy with like fucking Bed chandeliers posts. just on the hood. <laughs> like it's like so bling, man. I mean, I think there was a disco ball there too. There's definitely a disco ball. ball. Yeah. Yes, there yeah. is. Like right on the dash. Okay. okay. Yeah. Which would probably yeah. like if you went under a light that would probably blind you. You'd get like all these beams of light right in your eye. But whatever, it looks cool. Yeah. So anyway, nobody steps to this guy. You know what I mean? <laughs> he's he's the uh, he's like the top cheese for the for the villains in, uh, or is the main villain in this movie. And I don't know. No, I I just think that's interesting. I don't. Did he have much of an acting career, or was this kind of like just a one-off thing for him to do? I'm not sure if I mean I always liked Isaac Hayes in in anything that he was in. Uh, he's not a great actor by any means, but his his presence was always appealing. Uh, I don't know if it was his first movie. I know I've seen him in several uh, as a kid as uh, as well as you know up to his death. Really. He has 70 acting credits on IMTV. So wow. apparently he's wow. been in a lot yeah. of stuff. I, like I said, I always liked his presence in any movie. Uh, he's just a cool dude. <laughs> he headlined a movie called Truck Turner, uh, which came out in 1974. So that was probably like around the height of his musical popularity. Right. And I've never seen that film, but I've definitely heard of it. Um, you know, just reading about like the 70s black exploitation films and stuff like right. that. Um, which I used to love. Yeah, I'm a big fan of Shaft. Uh, that whole series is oh, great yeah. with uh, the oh, original yeah. Shaft with Richard Roundtree. So he'd been in some movies before and uh, and definitely has screen presence. I agree, he's not the best actor in this, but that's because he's up against you know just some of the all-time greats like Lee Van Cleef and Ernest Borgnine. And um, you can't help but, uh, but pale a little bit in comparison to those guys just as far as acting talent. But, you know, he's got the perfect look for this movie. He's got this, uh, you know, like you said, nobody steps to him. He's got this badassery about him i mean the thing is you're making a movie about this snake plissken character who is supposed to be the ultimate badass so who can you actually pit him against and uh, and that was i think a very good choice um another scene that i want to talk about that i really like a lot is the fight sequence where snake plissken is captured and basically <laughs> thrown into a boxing ring with just the ugliest meanest looking hugest guy i've ever seen in a movie the like this guy's straight out of, of like time yeah yeah it's very very thunderdome um and we've had a couple of mad max movies before this one um but they definitely beat Thunderdome, the the last Mad Max movie of the original trilogy, to that idea where it's like, uh, you know, two men enters, one man leaves. And right. I don't know who this guy was. He was probably a professional wrestler or something like that. But that fight sequence is awesome. I love everything about it. Yeah, it's pretty spectacular. And you are correct. This guy is, uh, dude, he's a menace, man. Like, he's that huge. Yeah. Like there's no way in real life that 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 Kurt Russell could take that guy down. Well, Kurt you know? Russell, uh, you know, Snake Plissken outwits him. It's not about who's bigger. Um but they're I, True. I just love they both walk into the ring and they're each handed a spiked bat and I'm like, "Are we getting a spiked bat fight here?" Yep. <laughs> and yep. 
We absolutely well, do. Forces, and it on. does pay off very, very well in the end. Um, you know, they're fighting in this old train station and basically the Duke's entire gang is there like cheering this thing on. And uh, it's just such a, a fun, energetic and really gritty, bone crunching kind of sequence. Yeah, I have to point out, uh, I would mentioned to Chris earlier before we started that I uh, watched Escape from L.A. last night. So <laughs> I have to point out that uh, Kurt Russell, obviously, he hurts his right leg during that fight scene. I believe it was during the fight scene or, or out on the street. At any rate, it's a little before that he shot with an arrow. And okay, that's what it was. Yeah, so arrow. he actually, that's yeah, he's, right. he's already hurt in that fight scene. Right. Okay. So I have to point out that the exact same thing happened to him in Escape from L.A. His right leg is injured through the whole movie, yeah. or at least half halfway through the movie, so he's limping around. So he's fighting this giant with a, a, a injured leg. I love that little detail, too. I mean, this is such a gritty movie that you can have your hero actually suffer a wound like that, and he limps and hobbles through the rest of this movie. <laughs> yeah. Like, after that sequence with the arrow in yeah. that fight, in the chase scenes that follow that when he goes back to the World Trade Center and all that, he's having right. a very, very tough time getting around. And yep. I feel yep. like that's not a thing you see in a lot of action movies now. You know, people just sort of laugh they off a, a bullet wound or something, <laughs> and he does not. You know, he is, uh, you know, partially crippled through the rest of the movie, and that's that just shows how tough he is, right? Like, that's right. definitely more of a spaghetti Western thing than an American action movie thing. Although, yep. you know, Die Hard is one of my favorite movies, and he's pretty beat up by the end of that. Uh, his feet are cut up pretty bad. Yeah, I, I think today's action movies tend to uh, gloss over injuries pretty quickly. <laughs> one scene, they're almost dead. The next scene, you know, they're 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 back to normal. So, I, I like I like when an injury is realistic. Yeah. Yep. No, that's that's definitely a good point. Um, I forgot that he had the limp in L.A. too, but we'll. Uh, We'll get there at it's some point. It's been such a long time since. I hope you'll come back on the show because we're going to have to talk about that one eventually. I'm not looking forward <laughs> to it because I love this movie so much. And, uh, and yeah. I, I, what little I remember about Escape from L.A., I remember it not being so good. So, uh, I, I would agree. It was basically, I, I said this <laughs> earlier, as a, it was the exact same plot for the most part with a lot more cheese and more special effects that weren't good. <laughs> Is there, I don't know if you guys have seen this, but a few, maybe 10 years ago or so, this film came out, I believe it was called Lockout. And I've heard it's like a direct ripoff of Escape from New York where the Snake Plissken character uh, is... is inserted into this space prison it's like a space station that functions exactly like the city of new york does in this movie (laughs) and i don't remember much about it like who's in it i believe it was a french co-production but i've heard it's like beat for beat a ripoff of escape from new york and i kind of want to see it just because um i want to see how blatant it is but did either guys of you guys see that movie i'm pretty sure i've seen that movie and i don't remember any of it but (laughs) the plot that you just said to me is is it definitely jogs my memory of, oh, wait a minute, I've seen that movie. <laughs> well, just like Halloween, you know, th- th- I think this movie was copied and ripped off and inspired a, a whole series of other films. I mean, and it was relatively a successful movie at the time c- in comparison to a lot of his other, uh, Carpenter's other movies, which weren't really like embraced at when they came out. But over time, I mean, this movie's 
like a straight classic. You was know? this and, his highest grossing box office movie, or as far as at the, uh, no Halloween as released? I mean, when as released, not over the years. I mean, he's kind of on a streak at I this point so. financially, right? Like Halloween is a hit. I mean, it takes a yeah. little while to become that. The Fog made made money. It's not a blockbuster, but did pretty well. This was a money making movie. It's not till you get to the next one, uh, till you get to the thing where he starts to have this trouble at the box office and uh, and people stop coming out in droves and and appreciating these movies right away. But I do believe Escape from New York um, made a lot of money. This is his second movie for the the Avco Embassy. Production company, and this was their biggest movie at the time. I believe it was like about a, a nine million dollar budget, and they made a ton of money back on it. Uh, this was that. I mean, it's not a huge production company, but this was, I believe, their biggest hit ever at that point. Wiki- Wikipedia's got it grossing uh, twenty five million. Oh, so, since since its release, or as a, at like the time, box office, yeah, yeah, at the time in the box office. Um, and again, who, who knows how accurate this is, but Wikipedia says $6 million budget, $25 million. Which is not office. bad on uh, on a budget, you know, that fairly low for an action movie no, like that's... this. Um, what I was going to say is is you were talking about how influential this film is. And I remember going to the video store when I was a kid and seeing all the ripoffs of Escape from New York. Like they had titles like 1990, <laughs> The Bronx Warriors and After the Fall of New York. Mm-hmm. And basically they were these Italian ripoffs of Escape from New York. And rather than New York being a prison, they were all just post-apocalyptic movies and they all had these kind of badass snake plissken looking characters in them they were all terrible i saw some of them later on um you know you can watch a lot of those on youtube now but um just like with uh you know the the way the italian production companies made westerns when westerns were popular and um like in the late 70s early 80s they got into zombies and horror films they were basically copying things they'd seen in george romero and stuff like that um this was hugely influential on that we're talking about the beginning of the vh Jess era, you know, in the early 80s. So I could definitely see some sort of shadier, low rent production company seeing something like this and thinking, oh, I could do that. All I need is to find some bombed out locations and we'll throw some people in some raggy clothes and, and get like makeshift weapons and stuff. And we'll do a post-apocalyptic movie. I'm sorry. I just need to interject that the exact same thing happened sure. with Halloween. You know, that movie came out and made so much money. It was so wildly successful. And a lot of people looked at it and they're like, we could do that. You know, <laughs> and just that's when you had this tidal wave of just you know mediocre slasher flicks coming yep, out yeah so again it's why I, I think that you know john john carpenter is a uh not just a visionary as a filmmaker but a pioneer i mean Definitely. a lot of these movies were, were really nothing too similar to that beforehand uh if that yeah makes the sense. problem is though his movies are so much better right like uh like I was saying, these production companies see a Carpenter film, they know he's working with a low budget, they know that he's trying to cut corners as far as, you know, locations and stuff like that. The The difference is, he's such a good filmmaker, and he puts his heart and soul into these movies, and all these other things are just like cheap cash-ins, so how many bad holiday-themed slasher films did we see in the wake of Halloween? And, you know, like I said, these post-apocalyptic New York movies, and like, all of them were set in New York, too. Um... They're not good. Well, his character chemistry is, is you know, so much better. Uh, the story, you know, underlying stories, you know, surface story, you know, e- everything about it, you know, not even just cinematic, but, uh, you know, the entire package is just, 
you know, quality. Yeah, I mean, he just he draws in his own influence as well. Um, this is this movie. It's a prison movie. It's a western. It's a science fiction movie. It's so many different things, and it just does them all like with this really keen understanding of genre and this really great way of building sequences and building tension. And there are just so many great sequences and, and iconic moments in this movie. I mean, just uh, like where the the helicopter comes in to Central Park, which they're totally not in Central Park. I believe that was another James Cameron and Matt of the skyline in the background there. But even that's another iconic sequence. It's just this little moment late in the movie. But it just has so many memorable images and it realizes this post-apocalyptic looking world so well. And it's not just, well, let's go find some broken down buildings to shoot in. But uh, but everything seems very, very well considered here. And, And I just, you know, hats off again to the production design team because this really feels so organic it feels like this is how people would trash a city if you gave them an opportunity to trash a city this movie also begins john carpenter's obsession with helicopters (laughs) (laughs) he has a helicopter in like every movie he makes after this there's not a movie without a helicopter Um, Nick, did you notice that Nick Castle has a writing credit on this? Yes, and actually, um, just uh, going back to the interview I was talking about, Carpenter says that Nick Castle brought a lot of the humor to this film. So um, the way he describes it, his original script was just very serious and very dark and kind of played up those elements of the story. And when he brought in his old friend Nick Castle, who played The Shape in Halloween and who went on to his own Hollywood career, he's an interesting guy also, um, he's the one that brought some of the wit and the subtlety and the humor and the sarcasm to it. And that's one of the things I love about this film also. So uh, important contribution there. I, 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 in watching the beginning credits, I actually noticed uh, Larry Franco, which I immediately thought of the Franco brothers. I was like, huh, I wonder if they're related. So I looked it up and apparently he's Kurt Russell's ex brother-in-law. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know that wow. that that name like jumped out at me when I was watching the opening credits. I believe he directed. Did he direct that? He's a um, I don't know. He's listed as a producer. Okay, uh, Deborah Hill. Deborah Hill back in the production again as well. Yeah, again with um, John Carpenter and his new wife as the co-star of this movie. Like uh, you know, I was saying when we we're talking about the fog, there must have been some tension on set there, where you've got his ex-wife <laughs> and his current wife sort of working together on this film. But I guess they must have gotten along pretty good because they came back and did this one. He's he's John Carpenter. You can do whatever he wants. <laughs> I guess so. Uh, he, he can have he can have all his exes there. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> um, another thing I wanted to point out here that we. Uh, cannot conclude this episode without bringing up. Um, and I did mention this on our uh, discussion on the John Carpenter anthology music compilation, but this score is uh, pretty spectacular. It's, it's one of my, uh, I think as far as like the main theme of escape from New York is one of his better um, compositions. And, uh, for his career, this ended up being this was the first time where like after this movie came out, he was approached by like a record label that was like, We want to release the music from Escape from New York. And he's like, Cool. Who would ever want to listen to just the music? <laughs> right. Uh the Escape from New York was released, you know, on on record in probably the following year or something like that, like maybe eighty two or eighty three. 
I don't know. I would have to. I would have to look it up to get my facts straight here. But I'm pretty sure it was like a platinum album or something. Nice. Like it, it sold a lot of units, and that would have then, of course, end up becoming a trend for him. Where it's like, okay, now every movie I do, I have to like release a separate soundtrack or score. So, well, the main theme for this movie is so good. It's so melodic. I mean, I could definitely see someone listening to that. I mean, it doesn't sound like a film score. It sounds like a song. You almost want to put some lyrics to it. Yeah. Well, we kind of did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, just quick little plug on that. Uh, actually, on uh, the album, MDLXV, Ollie Twist, I uh, used a little loop from Escape from New York for the song Sleeper. So if anybody can catch that without suing us, let us know. <laughs> I, I know, I can't even, and it's funny because I can't even think of what particular sample that is there's a lot there's uh it's a little drum sample that has this uh like a uh, rising string in it and i can't remember which scene that that loop or that song is used in but uh i just remember hearing it and it just fits so well into sleeper <laughs> i had to uh i had to uh do our homage <laughs> yeah yeah no it's it's an excellent soundtrack and then and then there of course there's a lot of the um less layered stuff throughout like there's a lot of just what you would expect, like the techie sounding, you know, just the total, totally eighties synth oh, yeah. arpeggiation stuff going on. I mean, it's, it's pretty great. Um, and the more and more I watch modern uh, sci-fi and horror films now and listen to the score again, I feel like, uh, you know, it's, it's easy to, it's clear to see that uh, Carpenter pioneered a lot of the style, uh, same, same stylistic decisions that are being, used in modern film yeah well the so. the synth thing has really come back uh, one of my favorite movies is drive from 2011 and you know how can you possibly look at that film and listen to that film and think john carpenter is not a huge influence on the style yeah. of, of of music that is so integral to that movie so yeah again he's uh, he's a real trendsetter and he sort of seizes on the best parts of that like you know not every 80s synth thing still sounds good um, you know, like if you listen to like ministry albums or something like that from the 80s, it's like, oh, that's uh, that's a little <laughs> cheesy sounding, um, you know, and they, they sort of got more fleshed out and better sounding later on. But this still just really sounds great to me. Uh, real quick, touching on the artistic aspect of, of, of the music, I also wanted to talk about the cover of Escape from New York because the giant beheaded statue of liberty uh you know that i i believe that that was a huge draw for me when i was younger because of planet of the apes and the way that that movie ended with the exact same image uh that's on the cover of or the posters for escape from new york so having seen that again i was like whoa i was like you know maybe that's what really you know was visually one of the uh interesting yeah, yeah. So he's showing me the album right now, and and you know the cover, like I said, is that iconic uh, beheaded Statue of Liberty. You know, basically like you know, liberty is dead kind of thing. You know, we screwed ourselves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, you could totally sell a movie on that image, and of course, like I was saying, when this got into the video stores, you know, when people were renting films on VHS, like I remember this one standing out in the sci-fi section at the store that I used to go to, and you know, that's another thing that that 
I really love about this era that we don't really get anymore is these painted posters for movies where, Mm -hmm. you know, rather than just being a photoshopped piece of, uh, you know, take a few stills from the film and and kind of photoshop them into something cool looking, what they basically did was, uh, you know, very similar to comic books where they'd get these artists to paint covers for them. And, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking of like Ralph McQuarrie's Star Wars poster that's so iconic and that is a painting. You know, the actors don't actually appear in it. Um, just a little bit of trivia that I was reading, uh, just looking over some stuff about Escape from New York. That poster was a huge influence on J.J. Abrams, who I believe wrote and produced Cloverfield. And if you remember uh, the opening sequences of that movie, I think the Statue of Liberty's head does get cut off and hmm. uh, and thrown into the middle of a, a city street in New York. So Right, right. Just the poster alone was evocative enough to inspire a whole movie. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like I said, it was very reminiscent of that closing scene in Planet of the Apes. Uh, Powerful, you know, powerful scene. Totally. So, Raj, we're going to get out of here pretty soon, but um, what else do you want to say about this movie? What are uh, some some thoughts about Escape from New York that you want to definitely get out there on this show? Um, You know, like I said, I, I, I found that having Chris, you know, be so adamant about his passion for John Carpenter. He's really, you know, made me, uh, you know, revisit these movies that I, you know, I never would have really thought twice about. I either liked them or I didn't like them, you know, but, uh, we were talking about this beforehand and, and his, his vision of society and the future and, and the timelessness of the issues that, uh, still plague, modern society i i know every generation has pretty much the same problems you know history repeating etc but you know they live and and even this movie I, they live to me was just phenomenal uh i saw that in the theater also but uh the the social aspect i mean just the way he brings things that are happening to your attention but I don't want to say subliminally because it's not really subliminal, but subconsciously, uh, however you want to look at it, uh, it's so poignant to 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 current society, past society, probably future society. So it's timeless, you know. It really, uh, it, it's really great how he can do that. Yeah, and it's very subtle, but it's definitely there, and it's in the context of this tough guy action movie, which is not a thing that you really see a lot. Um, you know, either they wear their politics right on their sleeve, something like Death Wish, um, right. or you have something like this where, you know, as, as we've said a couple of times, you can enjoy this on a purely visceral level and right. just enjoy the witty dialogue and the cool chase sequences, but there is so much going on. Um, the uh, The other which I think is really fascinating. Um, One of the great sci-fi authors of the 80s is William Gibson. And I was reading a couple of things that he had to say about this movie. And um, I guess this was a a huge influence on his book Neuromancer, which was basically Mm. the novel in the 80s that predicted the internet. I remember reading that when Mm -hmm. I was a kid before a lot of this stuff was just sort of a daily reality. And what he said about this film is it's all the little things that are hinted at in Escape from New York about like how this future society works. It's not an 
anything that necessarily they showed in the film that intrigued him. But, you know, he was saying like these wars that Snake Plissken was supposedly a participant in and and, you know, how the the political conflicts would play out in the future that influenced him to uh, to start writing about what a, you know, post 1980s, post Reagan future society would be like. So there's definitely a lot of that stuff happening in this film. Now, was Neuromancer the movie all based off his book? Is there a movie? I thought there was. I, I thought there was a Neuromancer movie. <laughs> I, I, I feel like I've seen one. <laughs> I don't think so. I know it's been a project that like people have been trying to adapt for years. But um, okay. you might be thinking okay. of Johnny Mnemonic. I believe that was one of his stories too. The Keanu Reeves movie from like ninety three, ninety four that I dragged my dad to, and he fucking yeah. hated it. I remember that movie. I didn't really like it either. But I'm probably confusing several movies like Necromancer, Johnny Mnemonic, all into <laughs> Neuromancer. <laughs> well, that is the danger, right? You see enough movies and they all do start to run together. I have that problem a lot too. Looks um, like Neuromancer is like in development or something. Yeah, and I think it has been for like 20, 30 years. Um, no wow. one's really been wow. able to uh, to crack that book as a movie. It's a really great book though. And, uh, and you'd be very surprised. I mean, I haven't read it in a long time. I think I was a teenager when I read it. But a lot of the things that that book talks talks about turned out to be pretty much true um you know about the way people interact in virtual environments and uh, and how the internet i don't think they called it the internet in that book but the way that sort of technology would take over society um he was very prescient about that um raj what else what else do you love or hate or want to talk about as far as escape from new york goes uh you know just the pure entertainment of that movie like i said as a mm. kid you know it, it was a great you know, like like I said, the entertainment value alone was is enough just to watch the movie. You don't have to go deep into it. You don't have to uh, dissect it at, at all. You can just watch it. And even today, it might be a little slow in parts for you know the ADD society we have today. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, it's an entertaining movie. Uh, and if you have the patience to sit through and watch it as a whole. It's a it's a really good movie. Fair enough. I agree. We're going to talk more about the film next episode. We will break down some specific sequences and uh, and talk a little bit more about where Carpenter was at this point in his career and uh, and the sort of opportunities that this film opened up for him. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a film that works on a lot of different levels. I say a lot, you know, you can watch movies on easy mode, medium mode and hard mode. It's like a video <laughs> game. So if you want to watch this film on easy mode and just appreciate um, the, the design and the action sequences and the characters, you can do that or you can look deeper into it and uh, and definitely get some social commentary and subtext and stuff like that. I mean, like I said, I watched this movie on television. I used to record movies off of TV, particularly when it was stuff I had seen, like this one in the video store, and it's like, alright, well that's rated R and my mom won't let me rent that, <laughs> but if I tape it off of TV, then, uh, then I can see it that way. And like I said, a lot of stuff was cut out of it, but you got the gist, and um, you know, even in that cropped sort of TV aspect ratio, even with sequences cut out, even with some of the violence cut out, um, you could still have a really great time with this movie and still really enjoy it for what it is. Real quick, I want to touch on a uh, character that we didn't talk about, well, we touched on, but Adrian Barbeau. <laughs> so as a kid, you know, watching Maud was my introduction <laughs> to Adrian oh, Barbeau. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when she stopped doing you know, television and started doing movies, you know, it was, it was quite visually appealing to a teenage boy oh, yeah. and how titillating <laughs> it was. <laughs> All puns intended. Yeah. I mean, 
Look, man, like we were talking about. I mean, John left Deborah for, for her. You know? Yeah, and her cleavage should get a supporting actor credit in this movie because it gets a it lot really of screen should. time. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So her that, hair, that, though, is that's is... the other part that you might want to watch the movie for. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering where she got that perm in this post-apocalyptic prison city, though. Like, is there a hairdresser there that could have done I'm, that for her? Yeah, I'm pretty sure everyone had that perm back then, <laughs> even dudes. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe she had it before she went into prison and it was just that good. It lasted that long. All right, Chris, any final thoughts for uh, for this first take on Escape from New York? I love this movie. Glad that we are finally discussing it. And um, yeah, here we are. We're already already through Escape from New York. And uh, but we do have more to talk about. We can flesh that out on the next episode as we continue our journey. Um, through the rest of the 80s, 90s, and uh, aughts with Carpenter's work. But no, this is a good one. This is, uh, I don't know if I, if I, Nick, are you putting this movie in your, like, top three? This is my third favorite, actually. I was just going to ask you guys that, where you would rank this movie in terms of the entire Carpenter filmography that you've seen. I mean, I would love if something that I've never seen, like Starman, becomes my favorite Carpenter movie. Um, <laughs> it won't. But, but for me, it's it's The Thing, Halloween, Escape from New York, um, pretty pretty definitively. What was that? Was it The Thing, Halloween, and Escape yeah, from so New York? Yeah, so I think okay. The Thing is his best movie. Um, Halloween is just a step behind that, and this one is, you know, my my third favorite. Interesting. I can't decide now that you said that. I don't know. It's 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 in the upper it's in the upper half for me. The upper half. Wow. That's yeah. that's like damning with faint praise, isn't it? <laughs> so well, it's in your I like top a lot 20? of it, it, we're, we're, I think what's going to get really interesting in this show is like pretty much at this point in his career, like everything he he's done is critically acclaimed to an extent, you know, and, and I think that people can in a unanimous way kind of agree that they're all classics as we get further into his filmography there's going to be some movies that um i mean i'm not going to try to defend person well actually i will try to defend a little bit i what i'm saying is there are some movies that i like that he's done that i think a lot of people probably don't like and you think some of those are better than this uh some of them yeah or just uh, not not saying better, but right. as far as like what my favorite would be right, right fair right, enough right. um raj yeah. how do you feel what is your favorite carpenter film well, I honestly, I I don't have that kind of, uh, you know. Uh, you don't have a detailed don't have, number, my number ranking of your favorite. No, movie. I just don't have the amount of John Carpenter movies that I've seen. Uh, I like I said, I've probably seen more than I think because I didn't know he was involved. Uh, for me, like I said, this was an introduction to John Carpenter uh, that I knew who John Carpenter was and. Just uh, memories-wise, I would have to put this right there at the top. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned They Live before. I know. love They Live. Yeah. Uh, I was older when that came out. Uh, I, I, you know, it, but watching it many times since, I really, really like that movie. Yeah, yeah just the whole a, commentary. A we'll have to come back to talk about that film also because I think we're I'm, gonna have I'm, a lot to say. That could be a three-episode uh, discussion. <laughs> I'm going. I'm going. Memoirs of an Invisible Man, number one of the bullet. <laughs> you know what, Chris? I knew you were going to say that. Followed very closely by Escape from L.A. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Ghosts of Mars. <laughs> Definitely knew knew that was going to be in there somewhere. 
All right. Well, you should tell us about your favorite Carpenter movies. I'm sure none of those are going to be in your top three. But if you uh, have been listening to the show and would like to share that with us or you have any other ideas for us, you can contact us via our email, which is precinct13podcast at gmail.com. You can catch up with us on Twitter at 13precinct. We are at facebook.com slash 13precinct. And our website where you can download all of our episodes and subscribe to the show is precinct13.simplecast.com. Well, I'll just take this opportunity to thank you guys for having me. Uh, It was a lot of fun. I never really looked at movies the way you guys do, but uh, it's definitely opened my eyes and I appreciate it. Yeah, totally. Keep watching movies on hard mode. That's what we love to do. (laughs) I'll try. (laughs) All right. For all of us here at Precinct 13, have a great couple weeks and we will be back soon to talk more about Escape from New York. (laughs) 